crowd of the news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. I'm going to play a little clip for you, and I challenge you to listen to it and come away thinking that this sounds devious, that it sounds like a nefarious plan to control Edmontonians. Being able to walk from home to a grocery store, doctor's office, playground, or school. Not just a list of things people often look for when buying a home, but goals the city of Edmonton has for all neighborhoods to become 15-minute communities. Where you can find employment and entertainment and recreation and uh, you know retail amenities within 15 minutes of your front door. A 15-minute community, or a 15-minute city, is a concept that's been around for quite a while. We covered it on this show more than a couple of years ago. It is an important civic conversation to have, and you don't have to agree with it or commit to radical changes to anything. It's an interesting urban planning theory. We should talk about its merits and test it and see if it works. But (laughs) you can't do that anymore. This will be met with extreme resistance from residents, but this resistance will not be publicized and all opposition will be censored. At this point, many city dwellers, those with the means at any rate, will likely decide to move to rural areas to retain their freedom. The response from the central planners will be to declare that living in rural areas is bad for the environment and will introduce all manner of taxes, restrictions, anything they need to do to force people back into cities. I found that clip by searching for 15-minute cities on YouTube. It was one of the first results. There are hundreds more like it, each of them, imagining the future of a city planning initiative as the beginning of the end for human freedom. So yes, today we'll examine what 15-minute cities are. But more importantly, we'll examine how they became part of what I have begun to think of as the UCU, the Unified Conspiracy Universe, in which everything announced by a government anywhere, no matter how innocuous, becomes evidence of a secret plan to remake the world. I mean, If we can't even talk about bike lanes and diverting traffic and local groceries without this stuff seeping in immediately, how are we going to talk about anything? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Peter Guest is the acting business editor at Wired. Hello, Peter. Hello there. Why don't we begin with you just explaining the concept of a 15-minute city. What is it exactly? Sure. So, I mean, the term refers to a relatively simple concept, which is that people who live in cities should live within a quarter of an hour on foot from basic amenities, so shops, leisure facilities, green spaces, cafes. 
And, you know, as you say, there have been various similar ideas around for years, just talking about ways to make urban areas more livable, less concentrated. This isn't really like a manifesto or some radical planning initiative that drives massive changes in cities. It's more just like an articulation of a desire to make urban areas less car dependent, have services more evenly distributed, stop cities looking a bit like London can, you know, where you have a center where everything's concentrated and then people live in orbital dormitories, right? So that's fundamentally it. You know, the kind of things that we're talking about here are small community-led things like cycle lanes traffic calming, footpaths, places where you put parks and swings and that kind of thing. You know, the kind of thing that you normally wouldn't see breaking outside of like hyper-local media. And since you just mentioned that this is not, in fact, a manifesto, um, recently, what has the conversation been? So, so look, particularly here in the UK, right, there's already always been a little confusion caused by certain kind of political commentators who equate these measures with more controversial, like not exactly radical things, but more traffic calming attempts to reduce the amount of vehicle traffic and air pollution and so on. And those things have always you know, historically had a, a kind of reactionary element who, or communities of interest around them, the kind of people who would have handwritten signs in their gardens, angry letters to the local newspaper and so on. But it's fair to say it's somewhat spiraled from that. And on an online, we've seen this term, the 15-minute cities term floating around in conspiracy groups for a few months. Um, although the researchers I've been talking to have been tracking it a lot longer. It's been kind of floating around on the under the surface for a while. And I started noticing it in anti-vaxxer groups in around sort of November, December, but it's then started getting picked up and amplified by people like you know, Jordan Peterson, the right-wing author, who've kind of pushed it and unsubtly linked it to other conspiracy theories that are out there, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Jordan Peterson, our greatest export here in Canada. Um, can you explain maybe just what's gone on in the UK recently that has kind of given m- more life to this? There's a couple of planning initiatives, I gather, that have, uh, I don't want to say provided evidence because it's not that, but that have have added fuel to this fire. Sure. So... There's been a few places in the UK which have had this 15-minute cities thing. It's, again, somewhere in their literature. Uh, and also, we've had a lot of places which have been trying to reduce traffic flow through the centre of towns and so on. Some of that is, you know, linked to the pandemic, as more people have been working and living in you know, suburban areas. Um, there's been a desire to kind of reduce the amount of traffic on the streets. So those have been in places like Oxford, Canterbury. You know, Oxford has put in place a um, a few relatively straightforward measures that are supposed to reduce the amount of, of traffic coming through the town, then they're not actually even in place yet. They're going to be going to next year. But on one level, there's just a cast of usual suspects who have got angry or kind of performatively angry about these traffic calming measures. And a lot of them exist in that kind of right-wing commentariat whose obsession is with state overreach at the moment. So the idea that everything, whether it's human rights laws or public health measures or cycle lanes, reflects a kind of totalitarianism, right? Mm-hmm. It's that kind of like spittle-flecked pub bore raging against change that they've built careers on. Right. And that kind of exaggeration, like the, the idea that reducing tra- traffic in the centre of Oxford is a slippery slope towards Stalinism, has put them in like, quite adjacent to some of the more out there conspiracy theories, right? And that's fed into this wider conspiracy universe. And it's really kind of picked up that flywheel of conspiracy theory as it meets mainstream concerns and back again. 
Right. And this is the meat of the conspiracy stuff that I want to get into. It's kind of like, a, I don't know, if you look at, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is like a universal conspiracy uh, theory that kind of explains everything. Can you can you tie this in to the bigger, broader conspiracies like uh, the QAnon and the, the alleged Great Reset? Like, where does this fit in and, and how does it play off that fear? Sure. So, so there are people who've done vastly more research than me on this, but who can kind of work you through the evolution of individual narratives, right? But in broad terms, that there seems to be like an organizing meta-conspiracy that's out there that's around the idea that there are hidden deep states whose intention is to control and limit our fundamental freedom, right? And that isn't new. The idea of the Illuminati running the world is really old. It overlaps with sort of centuries-old anti-Semitic tropes, millenarial cults, new world orders, you know, the anti Christ coming through the UN, all that kind of thing. And that's something you see with QAnon, right? This idea that there's a satanic cannibal pedophile cult secretly running America. I mean, it's clearly insane, but it's borrowed tropes that were already out there, right? All the way back to sort of blood libel, the protocols of the elders of Zion. And so this kind of smear of weird conspiracies, that they're, all, they're not quite interlinked, but as you say, they exist in the same kind of cinematic universe of nonsense, right? And they give a narrative connection between white supremacists and anti-vaxxers and ultra-chauvinists and all sorts of other subgroups within that meta-conspiracy. And if you think of that as the kind of basic tenet of the faith, that governments are going to control us, stop us moving around, stop us interacting with one another, you can kind of see how it's possible to spin up the idea that an urban planning initiative that says you can't drive your car through the centre of Oxford is actually the slippery slope towards locking us into ghettos. I mean, it shouldn't need saying it's completely not true. Yeah. But there is that there is that almost conceptual link where you can kind of trip a synapse and move across into it. Um, and then when you have this kind of slightly impenetrable, consciously elite-looking groups like the World Economic Forum launching initiatives in the middle of a pandemic with names like The Great Reset. You know, it's not great branding for the conspiracy world, but it gives a brand for the for the conspiracists to keep the thing moving online. And, and again, just call it because it's got a center of gravity for them to be able to kind of coalesce this stuff around. So if we look at 15-minute cities as just a basic urban planning concept. And, you know, to you and I, it's walkable cafes, it's a grocery store in every neighborhood, it's accessible transit and bike lanes and and doctors and that kind of stuff. What does a 15-minute neighborhood look like to somebody who believes the worst of this stuff? I mean, that's a really hard question to answer because, uh, you know, I don't think I'm in the mind. But I think... There are little aspects of this that you see through the messaging that, that people who are opponents of it get, right? You know, we talk to people who are sort of saying, hey, I'd like more bike lanes in my area of London. And they're being sent pictures of the Warsaw Ghetto and said, this has been tried before. You know, that's the kind of rhetoric which is out there. This idea that you're going to be tagged and controlled and your movements will be watched and, you know, you'll have to get a permit to move from one part of Oxford to another. Um, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the story that's being told on these conspiracy forums. Is it just being told in conspiracy forums? How public, uh, in the UK at least, which is where you can speak to, and and I mentioned in the intro to this, you know, how it's gaining steam uh, here in Canada, particularly in uh, Edmonton. It's not just the, the deep conspiracy forums. Like, how public uh, are some of the commentators pushing this stuff? 
there are some quite public figures who have been involved in pushing this from the beginning, right? And again, this isn't necessarily my research, but people have have looked at this among the kind of climate change denying groups prior to the even prior to the pandemic, right? We're trying to push these idea of climate lockdowns and so on. And so these people who are very public are still out there kind of pushing this kind of idea. But we've also seen it kind of get into the the not quite the mainstream media, but certainly on the fringes of the mainstream. So you have right-wing TV channels like GB News in the UK hosting people who are, have repeated these things. We actually had a member of parliament, Nick Fletcher, talk about this in parliament, right? He talked about this on the House of Commons saying this is an international socialist concept. And, and to be fair, he was, he was kind of laughed at for that. But it's certainly infected that kind of main, the fringes of the mainstream to the point where it is bouncing back and forth between the kind of conspiracy forums and and th- places that I was let's say normal people but places where the mainstream viewer would see it The news cycle these days can be relentless Let us help you with that I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency. In terms of 15-minute cities in general, you know, if we can somehow push the conspiracy stuff to the side, is this a conversation that could be a normal, debatable, constructive chat about urban planning and what we want our cities to look like? And, And what kind of discussion could we be having about these cities if we weren't being flooded with this crap? I mean, so, so look, I'm not an urban planning expert in the slightest, right? Sure. But what, what we can see is that these places have become lightning rods, right? So we've seen, you know, heard councillors having death threats, protests, even this weekend in Oxford, you know, people turning up with banners, with all sorts of conspiracy theories on them in Oxford city centre. You know, and this is, this is kind of corrosive to the normal conduct of politics, you know, people in public life do expect a degree of debate. Uh, and here you have people coming in from all over the country to accuse people who were kind of elected officials, civil servants, of being tyrants because, you know, or tools of a fascist regime, just because they've asked people, could they you please use the ring road rather than driving through the center of town, right? right. And, and so, yeah, it is, it's corrosive to, to local discussion. It's corrosive to the ability of us, to, of societies and communities to kind of make some relatively basic decisions. Here's a question for you. You mentioned earlier when we talked about the Great Reset that it's obviously not great branding for the WEF. Mm-hmm. And when I kind of think about the term 15-minute cities, which, as I mentioned, so innocuous, it's tempting to ask, like, does it even matter whether it's this debate, whether we brand it as something different? Um, if it wasn't 15-minute cities, would we be having the same fight over whatever we called it, you know, walkable towns? I don't know. Yes, um, I think is the answer. Yes, and again, this is you know this is some research that was done by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, right? Uh, which was around the idea of, of climate lockdown as a concept, right? And the, the research that they did found that even before the pandemic, in the kind of twenty nineteen beforehand, there were people who were unsuccessfully trying to get this idea of climate lockdown trending as a concept, 
right? And it didn't go anywhere. No one was really interested in it. Until we had lockdowns. Exactly. And so this is what happens. The pandemic gives us a lived experience of confinement. Right. There's a point of reference for people around the idea of what lockdowns mean. So it gives us solidity to the fiction, right? But there's another thing as well, which is that, I mean, the pandemic isn't over, but the normalization of it that we have now has meant that all of those internal conspiracies are a bit lost, right? They're a bit detract, detached. Mm-hmm. So the anti-vaxxers and the, you know, Bill Gates is putting microchips in vaccines and all that kind of stuff. That They're adrift, which leaves this infrastructure of channels and groups and influence that's kind of idle, right? There's a conspiracy group in search of a theory. And there's an economy around that too, right? Absolutely. There's an economy around it. And look, there's... Be careful how I, what I say here, but you know, there's an economy around it in the sense of the influencers themselves. People are able to monetize this concept, you know, this content, and there's an economy on the platforms that are hosting them. Um, so there are economic incentives to to spread conspiracy theories. Absolutely. If it's going to be uh, a fight over conspiracy, no matter what we call it, and this is such a simple civic discussion that we sh- should be having. What does that say about just the state of public discourse and public debate over anything that impacts like our day-to-day lives at this point? So look, I tend to answer that question only in interviews where I'm allowed to swear. Go for it. We'll bleep you if we have to. Because <laughs> the answer is like, we're in a very difficult place. Like, the tension between free speech and moderated speech and the dangers of algorithmically influenced discourse and the, as you said, the the kind of both political but also commercial incentives for the amplification of extreme views, they are not easily reconcilable. And I think we've seen regulators, we've seen judiciaries around the world trying to figure this out, and none of them have managed to do so yet. So we're in a difficult place. I'm not sure where we go from here. I made some cracks during this interview about how ridiculous this is. It's very tempting to make those jokes anytime this crap pops up, as you point out in your article. Uh, It's a short jump from making those jokes to something that is absolutely not a joke. How far are we away from, again, I can't believe I'm saying this, from something like 15-Minute Cities, which we have covered as a pleasant little civic story in the past, becoming something that can spark uh, real-world hate and violence. So I'm going to say there's two things here before we get to the violence, right, that I get very concerned about. And one, I'm, you know, I'm actually very nervous saying this because it can give fuel to the wrong fires. But like a lot of the work that I do in the last decade has been about surveillance and about authoritarian technology, which is real, mm-hmm. right? There are real concerns around surveillance and the erosion of civil liberties and rights, and not just in countries you'd expect to see it, right? In Europe, in North America, whether that's, you know, racial disparities in surveillance and facial recognition, authoritarian creep in policing, the tension between privacy and security. These are things that we have to have conversations about, and we can't, because these conspiracies create such a gravity that it begins to polarize even those technical debates, right? So we can't even have an honest conversation about that. So that's at one level where these things are very dangerous. But the other is, as you say, you know, the potential for violence is real. And in the UK, we often feel quite insulated from these conspiracies. You know, maybe it's the same in Canada, because we almost see this as an American phenomenon, a US phenomenon. Yeah. And we think, oh, they're mad over there, but it won't happen here. But it's growing here and there. Right. And these things exist on a continuum, right? We've seen a member of parliament in the UK murdered a few years ago by someone who was radicalized by right-wing conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Last year, we had someone throw a firebomb at a migrant detention center, again, apparently radicalized by misinformation. We've had um, massive protests outside uh, migrant detention facilities just like two weeks ago. Again, radicalized people, but who are there with banners that are 
fundamentally based on conspiracy theories. You know, we are not in a very rational place in our politics here right now. And there's a lot of extreme language flying around. And if you have conspiracy theories being repeated in Parliament and people in positions of influence willing to use them to, to build up their bases, you know, that's a dangerous place. And the extremity of the language, language in these conspiracies makes the potential for violence enormous. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's not my words, but someone I interviewed said, you know, it's only rhetoric until suddenly it isn't. That was going to be my last question, but I'll ask just one more, and I'm not going to get into like, oh, how do we solve this? Because there's probably a million things, and it's very, very difficult. But if I could give you, you know, the ability to make one change, enact one policy, um, where would you start combating this? Um, I think I'd be a far more effective journalist if I had that sort of solution. Um, <laughs> I am. I'm actually not sure it is soluble. Yeah, and that's a really depressing way to to, to end, but. You know, the tensions that we have, uh, as we said earlier, are between, for example, giving people the freedom to, to say things that are, that are difficult, that are challenging, that move, move, you know, that challenge the status quo versus giving people a platform and a bullhorn to, to, to spread hate speech, spread violence, spread misinformation. You know, these are tensions that we have not resolved. But what we do have now is, is an amplification that's very difficult for us to understand. So maybe talking, thinking out loud, perhaps, but maybe one thing that we really need is more transparency as to how algorithms work on platforms. Mm. How are things being amplified? Why are they being amplified? And there are moves, you know, some, some, some regulators, you know, I think we saw it in, in the Netherlands and I maybe have to check this, but certainly some parts of Europe, we're seeing regulators thinking, well, maybe we need to understand how the algorithms work just so we understand what the scale and shape of the problem is. And I think maybe that's a good place to start. At least we can start somewhere. Peter, thank you so much for your time. Very welcome. Thank you. Peter Guest, writing about conspiracies and 15-minute cities in Wired. That was The Big Story. You can find more at thebigstorypodcast.ca, and you know by now how to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can always call and leave a message, 416-935-5935. The Big Story is available on your favorite smart speaker and in your favorite podcast player. And of course, just by hitting the play button on our website. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. The news cycle these days can be relentless. Let us help you with that. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story, Canada's most interesting daily news podcast. Every day, we stop that news cycle in its tracks and examine one big story in depth, something that matters to Canadians. You can find The Big Story every morning for free at Frequency Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Find your frequency.